We turn to Psalm 45. Beloved of our Lord Jesus Christ. No, you don't read that, beloved. But I am commissioned to tell you that before I read the passage. You understand who you are as the Church of Christ, don't you? You are the beloved. You are the beloved of the Son of God. Do you, do we understand that? The honor that is ours? You and I should be the beloved of the Son of God. He desired us to love him in return. And when we love him and show that, he delights in that, that we could bring joy. That's true, beloved. We, by our love for him and for one another whom he loves, can bring to the Son of God a joy. What a wonder. We are addressed here as the bride of the promised Messiah who is set forth in this passage also as the Son of God. Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. Thou lovest righteousness. Therefore, God, thy God, hath anointed thee with gladness above thy fellows. Loved us, why? Beloved. Because we were so worthy, we know it not to be so, don't we? And yet, God so loved that he gave, not simply sent, gave to us as the great gift, his son, that by his love we might have life. And knowing that, beloved, you and I must understand our calling to be worthy of, to show how thankful we are and be worthy of how much he has loved us. With that in mind, my heart is indicting a good matter. I speak of the things which I have made touching the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. Thou art fairer than the children of men. Grace is poured into thy lips. Therefore God hath blessed thee forever. Gird thy sword upon thy thigh, O most mighty, with thy glory and thy majesty. And in thy majesty ride prosperously, that is, with a success to accomplish things. In thy majesty ride forth to accomplish great things because of truth and meekness and righteousness. And thy right hand shall teach thee terrible, that is, things that fill us fill with awe. Thy arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies, whereby the people fall under thee. Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of thy kingdom is a right scepter. Thou lovest righteousness and hatest wickedness. Therefore God, thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. All thy garments smell of myrrh and aloes and cassia out of the ivory palaces whereby they have made thee glad. King's daughters were among thy honorable women. Upon thy right hand did stand the queen in gold of Ophir. Hearken, O daughter, and consider and incline thine ear. Forget also thine own people and thy father's house. So let the king greatly desire thy beauty, for he is thy Lord, and worship thou him. And the daughter of Tyre shall be there with a gift, even the rich among the people shall entreat thy favor. The king's daughter is all glorious within, her clothing is of wrought gold. She shall be brought unto the king in raiment of needlework. The virgins, her companions that follow her, shall be brought unto thee with gladness and rejoicing shall they be brought, they shall enter into the king's palace.
That's going to be the residence. Instead of thy fathers, that is, in the place of thy fathers shall be thy children, whom thou mayest make princes in all the earth. I will make thy name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore shall, thy, shall the people praise thee forever and ever. Thus far the reading of this prophetic psalm. It's a psalm that has to do with the coming of the Messiah, the promised Messiah, the great son of David, of course. Psalm 2 that we sung, the versification of it has to do with his first coming, really. This is a psalm that considers the promised Messiah as having come and coming again. In some ways, this is a psalm that would be more fitting for marking his ascension than his first advent. His first advent, of course, the birth of Christ in Jesus in Bethlehem, had to do with the coming of the king, the promised king. Well, the king is still coming, beloved, and he's going to come in all of his glory but he has already been displaying that glory as we want to consider in the sermon this evening, in some ways more appropriate, I suppose, for marking the great redemptive event of the ascension. And in fact, I did preach this about a half year ago in our Kalamazoo congregation when at least part of the Reformed churches marked the great redemptive event of his ascension. But this is a psalm worth considering on any given Lord's Day during the whole of the calendar year. And we are in a month that has to do with prophecy of the coming of the king, so appropriate. And let's understand that for 2,000 years, this great majesty who is pleased to call us his bride and who is our Lord has ridden with his sword upon his thigh on his great white steed going forth to conquering and to conquer. I lift that phrase, of course, from Scripture itself and Revelation chapter 6. And Revelation chapter 6 is the beginning of the opening of the seven-sealed book. Is any worthy to be found that would open the seven-sealed book, which is, of course, the opening and then the prog progress of New Testament history. Who is worthy? And none could be found, and there was weeping in heaven, we read. And then, worthy is the Lamb. They call, talk about the Lion of Judah's tribe, and he comes forth as a Lamb, because it's as the Lamb, of course, he is laid right to be the Lion of Judah's tribe. And then he proceeds to open the seven-sealed book. But listen, as he begins to open that seven-sealed book in chapter 6. The Lamb opened one of the seals. And he hears this noise of thunder, John does. Come and see, says the beast, one of the beasts. And then I saw and behold a white horse. This is verse 2 of chapter 6. He that sat on him had a bow. Our text spoke of a bow, didn't it? And a crown was given unto him. And he went forth conquering and to conquer. That's Christ Jesus riding upon the white horse, which represents the gospel that was to go forth in the New Testament age. And by the use of that gospel, by his good and holy spirit, he would conquer, going forth conquering and to conquer, not simply beloved, not simply to defeat his enemies and to apply to the, his enemies crushing defeat, but to conquer his own by his love. He conquers us, beloved, by his love. And when he conquers us by his love, he not only transforms our hearts, he does that, but he speaks to our hearts, and by the words that he speaks, gracious words, he overcomes us, and we yield to him, and we say, Thou art my Lord. And we submit ourselves to him, to his goodwill, 
because in the end, he is altogether lovely and he is altogether wise. And he has our good, our everlasting good in mind. And for that in the end, beloved, we praise him and that part of him, that truth concerning him, our psalm sets forth as we shall see. So we're going to consider this passage and say the whole of the chapter, but because it's the whole chapter, we're going to focus simply on certain facets of the chapter. We're going to consider especially the burden of the sermon is in the first part of the psalm, and then briefly for five or seven minutes at the conclusion, what our calling is in the second part of the psalm. But under the theme, homage to the royal bridegroom, homage to the royal bridegroom. And then we want to consider in the first place the attractiveness of the victorious bridegroom, his attractiveness. The and then the, the occasion for the, the psalm itself, and then his characteristics that make him so attractive. And then the second point, which, about which we will be brief, the calling of the redeemed and chosen bride, simply to remind ourselves of whose we are and because of whose we are and then who we are, what our calling is in a very fundamental, basic, biblical way. So this text, homage to the royal bridegroom and beginning the attractiveness of the victorious bridegroom. A wedding text, beloved. A psalm for a royal wedding. A psalm that was commissioned by evidently an aging king who knew the time of his own departure was drawing near and commissioned because there was the crown prince who was to succeed him who was going to be married and the king commissions this psalm for the occasion of the wedding of the crown prince for his chosen bride. And notice chosen bride because as you know back in those days that was all arranged. It wasn't simply the young man went out and looked for a bride in the royalty that was all arranged which is has its own you know doctrinal and theological implications with respect to us and Christ as we have been chosen for him and made for him with made with him in mind even, if you can believe it. And yet that's the gospel, gospel word. But commissioned, and perhaps by David, we're not sure, but it could have been David, and then he would not have composed the psalm, but he commissioned it for the court musician. Notice how the psalm is, is headed to the chief musician, Shanim for the sons of Korah, that would be the ones who would sing this psalm, a song of loves, but one had to write the psalm, and so the court musician, poet, is commissioned to write this psalm for that occasion, perhaps by David, and then it would have been, of course, with Solomon in mind, and if it was for Solomon, he would have been a proper foreshadowing of the greater son of David, the promised Messiah, both from the point of view of a resemblance and a contrast. The resemblance, of course, would have been Solomon in what we know of Solomon's wisdom and his architectural ability because he, of course, is the one who not only gives mandate for the building of the temple, but there's every evidence that he was also the main architect of that temple, the splendor of the earth back then, representation of the splendor of the mind of the Son of God as the architect of the church herself, he being the temple in some ways, and yet he says he's also the cornerstone of the temple of the church that he himself, with the Father and the Holy Ghost, have ordained and, you might say, have been the architecture of. So a foreshadowing from a certain point of view, but also a contrast. I could ask the children a question. This is catechism. How many wives did Solomon have? And I can imagine any number of hands would go up of 
children in first, second, third grade already. How many wives did Solomon have? 300. That wasn't Christ, was it? That wasn't Christ. He's a one bride person. He's a one bride son of man to whom he is faithful and I will be faithful unto her, which is to say you, if need be, and it is even unto death. The contrast couldn't be, you know, from some points of view, more striking. But occasioned a commission then to the court poet and the court poet is highly honored. He says, my heart is inviting a good matter. I speak of things which I have made touching the king. And the occasion, of course, is this wedding, and that's a matter of great honor. Everyone's going to compose a song, a psalm for that occasion, fitting for that occasion, because, of course, that occasion would have been of tremendous significance for the kingdom, the wedding of the crown prince to his chosen bride, an elaborate occasion, the focus point of the, of the hold of the kingdom. Why? Because they knew that a wedding between a crown prince and a bride was important if they were going to have seed royal, and seed royal would be so important for the safety and the security in the time to come, because if you didn't have a crown prince born out of that union, who would be the next king? And there could possibly be civil war as men of ambition, generals and dukes and so on, would fight it out, and how many sons would perhaps die in the process of subtle, who was going to replace the king who died without a successor. So the marriage with the prayers that the union would be blessed with seed royal also for the safety and the security of the kingdom in the coming years. But also, I think, that the one who wrote these words, knowing the crown prince, loved that crown prince. He knew him, that this crown prince was not an arrogant young fellow who stood upon privilege, but was in the king when the courts of his father and knew the servants of the, of the father and enjoyed talking with the servants of, the, of, the, of his father, the king, not pulling rank, but amongst them as a friend. And so with this on his heart, the importance of the occasion and his affection for the crown prince himself, this writer reflects upon his, his mandate and he prays to God for the Holy Spirit. And in answer, the Holy Spirit blows upon the strings of his heart as a breeze upon the strings of a harp. And this is what comes from his tongue, first of all. He says, my tongue is the pen of a ready writer, perhaps speaking these words first and then writing these words down, verse by verse, stanza by stanza, if you will, till it's all composed with a heart that's overflowing. Well, beloved, whatever might have been the earthly occasion in the end, of course, the Holy Spirit had in mind more than simply the wedding between a crown prince of the earth to some lovely young maid chosen for him. The Holy Spirit had in mind, of course, the greater son of David and the union between that greater son of David and his bride, the church. Prophetic, then, from that point of you and the personage itself greater than any mere son of David because this one who is foretold here speaks of thy throne O God is forever and ever the scepter of thy kingdom and then goes on to say therefore God thy God so it speaks of one who is God and then speaks of God who is thy God so you have more than one persons in the Godhead re referred to here and by the way this is a passage of verse verses that are quoted in the New Testament. You know where? Maybe some of you do. We'll come to that in due course, where verses 6 and 7 are quoted in the New Testament. But the, 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 the grand majesty and glory then of the personage that this 
psalmist has in mind as the Holy Spirit works in his heart and comes through his, his pen. To understand the passage, it helps, of course, to understand something of the custom of that day, a custom that did not change for thousands of years. We know something of it from the parable of the ten virgins, do we not? How the bridesmaids made themselves ready with the bride at some location, and they were making themselves and the bride ready for the coming of the bridegroom who would come with his groomsmen who were at another location, who were enjoying some fellowship together and then dressing themselves in proper attire for the occasion and then going in the evening of the night as the sun was setting to collect, if you will, the, the bride-to-be and her bridesmaids and then to go through the streets of the city to the banquet hall where guests were waiting and they would celebrate with the guests who were waiting. The ceremony would be performed with a view to the union itself and the consummation of the, of the union in, in love. That's the perspective, of course. And that's the perspective that this psalmist takes, that the bridegroom, which is to say the groom, with his groomsmen have made themselves ready that day. They have enjoyed some fellowship together, and as the evening is coming, they go forth riding through the streets of the city. Sometimes they'd walk. Here it seems that they are on horseback because it says ride forth prosperously because of truth and meekness, going on horseback to the location of the bride who has prepared herself with the bridesmaids, and they will then go to the banquet hall, which here would be in the palace of the, of the king, which would become, of course, their, their home, if you will, the guests waiting to celebrate and to have the ceremony performed. And that's the perspective that the psalmist takes, this groom looking forward to the collecting of his, his bride and all prepared, fairer than the children of men, quite a, quite a statement fairer than the children of men. I'm reminded of a hymn, Thou art the fairest of 10,000 to my souls, to my soul. The lily of the valley, the bright and morning star, lifting phrases right from the song of Solomon. You know the hymn, I'm sure. By the way, that's interesting that in the heading there's a reference to Shoshinim, and that word they're quite sure means lily the lily of the valley, the bright and morning star. Be that as it may, he goes forth to collect his bride, and she is waiting for him. She has prepared herself for him. And understand, beloved, this is a psalm that revolves not about the bride, though she is to be highly honored, it's a psalm that revolves about the bridegroom, and she has prepared herself with a view to pleasing the eye of the groom, not the guests, first of all. Here comes the bride. We have a little bit of a different arrangement and different emphasis, and it becomes the bride's event to a certain extent, which I'm not critical of, just as long as the groom is not simply there so you have a prop. But usually the bride is the one who does all the planning and we as grooms just shake our heads and say, yeah, that, I can go along with that. Yeah, that, that sounds good. Yeah, that sounds good. This is a psalm that revolves about the groom and she has dressed herself to please his eyes, what he may think of her, altogether proper, beloved, when you consider this bridegroom who loves this bride who is to be his, his wife-to-be, and he's a bridegroom who is going to honor her and going to elevate her, and he's going to say to all his friends in the world, as you treat her, you treat me. And if you treat her with any shame and any kind of harsh and critical words and demeaning words, you're going to answer to me because I will take that personally. Are we listening? You and I better be very careful how we speak about the church. Others, you're speaking about Christ's bride. He takes that personal beloved. You speak that way about my bride, I'm listening. I take that personally. 
I love her. Weaknesses? Oh, yes. Did I not forgive your weaknesses? I learned to forgive one another's weaknesses as well. That's the bridegroom, and this bride knows he's that kind of a groom, husband to be. A psalm, beloved, revolves about Christ Jesus as the bridegroom. Proper. You understand, apart from this bridegroom, there would be no bride. There would have been no marriage. There would have been an annulment. He would have moved in the direction of a later man named Joseph, who was engaged to a young woman named Mary, whom he found great to be with child, and said, I'm going to put her away. She has not been faithful to me. And he would have put her away, as you know, except an angel came and said, Oh no, Joseph, she hasn't been unfaithful. That which is worked within her is not by a man, but by the Holy Spirit who has planted a seed in her womb. And he rethought himself and removed this whole matter of annulling the arrangement. But with Christ Jesus, beloved, when it comes to his bride with us, we have given him every reason to annul the arrangement, if you will, to divorce us, to put us away, not privately, but publicly, due to our unfaithfulness going right back to our first parents. But a church, you know, a bride that's represented in the genealogies that you find in Matthew, with which the Gospels open, if you recall, the genealogies of Matthew, the book of the generation of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, who was also of Abraham, so he's in the line of the covenant. And then you get to verse 5, and Solomon begat Boaz of not Solomon, Solomon, begat Boaz of Rahab. Rahab is found in this genealogy, beloved, who was a Gentile and a what? The catechumens could tell you what she was. She was a harlot. And she had a whole stable of harlots by which she made her living. And this woman, in all of her defilement, is found in the generations of Christ Jesus. And then there's a Ruth as well, and they begat Obed of Ruth. And you say, well, Ruth was a virtuous woman. Yeah, she was an idolater, you know. Before she was converted, she was an idolatress. These two Gentile women represent us, beloved, in our own natural filth and corruption. The bridegroom has every reason to divorce us. But he will not and he would not. He's the Lord of promise, the Lord of his word. And instead of divorcing, he gave himself to serve our sentence that he might have the right to wash us clean and to transform us so that we become Rahab, the faithful wife of the one who is even begets down the line Obed of Ruth, of course, and in begets Jesse, who begets David. That's the wonder of this great bridegroom of ours, loving his own. He loved them, which is to say us, even unto death. And it's this great bridegroom in his great love for his own who rides forth with his sword upon his Thigh, that most mighty one with his glory and his majesty riding forth to accomplish great things. And when he rides forth here, to what he's going to accomplish, beloved, is to gather his bride to himself. He's going to gather his bride to take her to the banquet hall for the ceremony. This has reference to the New Testament age, you see. When this bridegroom goes forth to gather his church in the New Testament age, he has already had two singular victories. He rides forth conquering and to conquer, as we read in Revelation chapter 6, 
to conquer the hearts of his own people and to bring them to himself. But he rides forth as one who has already accomplished some singular victories. And the first victory that he has accomplished already when he goes forth to collect his bride together, his bride to save his bride, is the victory over death itself. Our children know that. He tore the bars away, Jesus my Lord. Up from the grave he arose. What's striking, you know, is that this Christ Jesus accomplished that victory and displayed that victory, not simply by his resurrection, but he displayed he had the singular victory over death when he was yet in the grave. Paul, the Apostle Paul, right, uh, spoke of that to Jews in Antioch of Pisidia during the first missionary journey. Acts chapter 13, and he's speaking to the Jews, and he's calling them that your Messiah has appeared, the promised Messiah, the great son of David, his name was Jesus of Nazareth, and then speaks of his death and resurrection. But then he gets to this, God raised him from the dead in verse 30 of the chapter. But then he has more to say about that. He speaks of the second psalm there. That's why we sang from the second psalm. He quotes the second psalm, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Demonstrating divinity there, verse 33. And then 34, he raised him up from the dead. He saw no more return to corruption. I will give thee the sure mercies of David. Now listen to verse 35. Wherefore he saith also in another psalm, this is, verse, this is Psalm 16, quoting Psalm 16, knowing the Jews would know where this came from. Thou shalt not suffer thine holy one to see corruption. We've sung that psalm, haven't we? In Psalter numbers 29 and 30 and so on and 31. Thou shalt not suffer thine holy one to see corruption. For David, after he served his own generation by the will of God, fell on sleep. He fell asleep. He died. He was laid unto his fathers, and his body saw corruption, rotted away. But he whom God raised again saw no corruption. He saw no corruption, beloved, even in the grave. His, when he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit, having said it's finished, and they put that body in the sepulcher. It was not that his blood cells began to deteriorate and rot, and then the rest of the body began to disintegrate with it and have a stench. There was no stench to the body of Christ in the dying of his blood cells while he was in the grave. Don't think, beloved, that on Saturday there weren't alarm bells going off in the corridors of hell. Something is going amiss. He's like Daniel in the lion's den. Death approaches and dare not touch him. That body remains as it was with living blood cells while he's dead. Have we perhaps miscalculated badly and we have taken to ourselves our own destruction and our death? He tore the bars away, didn't he, children? Up from the grave he arose, the mighty victor or the dark domain. And he lives forever, does he not? That singular victory, when the gospel goes forth, beloved, the gospel goes forth concerning the one who is the victor or the dark domain or the power of death itself, which is why we can give ourselves to him and then fear not even death itself, but as a way to be transported to glory in the end. But one other great victory of this one who goes to gather his church, which gospel word we are to hear. And that's found in Revelation chapter 12 concerning the ascension. Chapter 12 speaks of this woman who was great with child and another wonder, a great red dragon. You know who that is. And he goes with his stars of heaven, stands before the woman in verse 4, ready to be delivered to devour her child as soon as it was born, go to Bethlehem, go to Herod, as soon as he's born I will devour him. And she brought forth a man-child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. There's the victory, you see, over, over evil. And her child was caught up unto God in his throne. That's the ascension. And the woman goes into the wilderness and there's war in heaven. What happened between the ascension and Pentecost? 
War in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought with his angels and prevailed not. And the dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil, cast out into the earth, and a loud voice, this is now down to verse 10 already, now is come salvation, strength, and the kingdom of our God, and the power of his Christ, of his promised Messiah. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, who accused them before our God day and night. Christ ascends up on high to a place that was not perfect. Heaven was not perfect, beloved, before the appearance of Jesus of Nazareth as the risen Lord and Savior. Those who were there were perfect as saints gathered to God. But the accuser of the brethren was suffered to come and say, what in the world are these people doing here? This Samson, that adulterer, this David, that murderer, this Noah, that drunk, and so on. What are, who has served their sentence? And he assaulted the righteousness of God, and God suffered it to be so until the Messiah, risen from the dead, having paid the price for the sinner saints, appears, and under his captaincy, Michael and his angels drive the accuser from heaven so that when we die, we go not to face accusations, but a glory that is simply kind of a vestibule awaiting the new heavens and the new earth, a temporary abode until the whole of the bride is gathered in some ways into the guest house, if you will, to await the great banquet, that singular victory as well. And then, having had the victory over death, and the decisive victory, and displayed it over Satan himself, that he might cast Satan not only out of heaven, but every sinner's heart ordained to eternal life, he sends forth the gospel and begins to gather the church, and we numbered amongst those whom he has gathered to himself and will gather to the very end of time. And as he reveals himself in the gospel, we as the redeemed and the renewed magnify him. We are attracted to him, beloved. What about this Messiah so attracts us now? It has everything to do with his character. Not with his appearance and looks, there is no beauty that we should desire him from a certain point of view. In a natural point of view, that's not his strength, whatever he might look like. We live in a day and age, of course, they want to magnify appearance, shape, and form. Advertisement, they make money off that. This is the standard by this or that, and you can look something like this standard of, of handsomeness and Heads, perhaps, of young ladies are, are turned because this or that young man seems to approach the, the standard of, of, of the age of what someone who's handsome should look like. Think it's about appearance? I'll give you appearance of another son of David. Ever hear of Absalom? Now that was a fine-looking young man, let me tell you, and he knew it. The most wonderful apparatus in his bedroom was the mirror. So he could admire himself with his wonderful golden locks. And he stole the hearts of a kingdom by his charm and his looks and his appearance. And he was such a prince, you know, in public. But one can be a prince in public, you know, and then in the privacy of one's home, one is anything but a prince. In the privacy of one's home, one is a perverse, arrogant, uh, narcissist and demanding and demeaning and belittling and critical and you didn't match up to others and with an eye for others than the one to whom he's married. That's how they are behind close, closed doors for all the outward charm of a prince in public. That's not Christ Jesus, beloved. He's not interested in being simply a charming prince in public. He is the one described here as truth, having to do with truth and meekness and righteousness, the Lord of truth, because you can take him at his word. When he makes vows, he keeps his vows. And his vows aren't simply, well, he may marry to you. 
His vow is, I will love you, I will treat you as my bride, and I will be good to you and provide the leadership you need, and I myself, if need be, will give myself even to death for your sake. I so love you. That kind of truth, a man of his word, you see. You can take him at his word, genuine, true. And meekness, where does that fit in? Well, think of the Lord Jesus in the upper room. He's the Lord of all. He's the Son of God in flesh. And he gets on his knees with an apron about his waist, and he washes the feet of his disciples, doesn't he? That's meekness. And when Simon Peter denied him, the Lord did not return denial for denial, did he? Evil for evil. And when Saul of Tarsus persecuted him, having loved Saul of Tarsus, did he treat him in kind in the end? No, he saved his soul. He returned good for evil, beloved. That's meekness. That's our Lord Jesus, don't you see? In truth and meekness and righteousness, a whole sermon on that, so I can simply say he lives in an upright way in accordance with his his word, and he's the example for the whole of the, of the church as he lives in accordance with his own word and being upright and moral, but in righteousness. A king needs righteousness. We can't go into that, all that tonight because one who is a king isn't one then who shows respect to persons. And if you have a certain status, well, now you get a, one kind of justice. But if you don't have money for my campaign and you don't have status, well, I'll, I'll treat you in, in a whole different unjust way. That's not our Lord, beloved. He's righteous without respect to persons. He treats us properly and in accordance with his own word and leads the church in that way as well. In truth, in meekness, and in righteousness and removes then ungodliness, and so on from the scene. That, first of all, having to do then with his character, but then add to that, I'm talking about why we're attracted to him, remember, what the passage is, his character. And grace is poured from his lips. Grace is poured into thy lips, but grace is poured into his lips that he may speak grace, gracious words. He may rebuke sometime and reprove, but still, gracious words, good words to instruct, to encourage, to build up. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my burden upon you. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. I will give you the strength to bear, you see, what I place upon you. Gracious words, thy sins be forgiven thee. You heard that and saw that in a visible way this morning, did you not? The forgiveness of sins, the price he paid that sins might be forgiven thee, and we may take him at his word, thy sins be forgiven thee. And then these words too, now go thy way and sin no more. Don't walk in the way of sin anymore. Gracious words, beloved. And then as well, his power to defend and preserve. It speaks of the arrows in his, in his, in his hand, in his bow, and the people fall under, under him so that he defends his church throughout the ages so that there's still a church left 2,000 years after he has ascended up on high. The mighty Roman Empire, invincible, you would think, like Babylon of old, and where are they? They're in the dust, aren't they? All you can do, go and do is visit ruins, and that's all that's left. The grandeur that once was gone, written simply on the pages of, of history. But the church, his church, beloved, we still survive. We have been preserved by the power of this king through thick and thin, through difficult times sometimes, and persecution itself, but he keeps his own, and the end is... Victory is ours because this is the one who has risen from the dead, ascended up on high, led captivity captive, 
and will come again for the final victory. And, unright and righteousness will rule from sea to utmost sea, and unrighteousness shall be found no more. You can place your hope, your confidence in that, because this is the Lord who keeps his word. And we ourselves, beloved, are the evidence of that. And then remember, men, he is our example as husbands with respect to character, truth, meekness, uprightness, living with our spouses and treating them in an honorable way. And where we have failed, Lord God, graciously forgive and now teach me the right way. And women who may be married or have been married to husband, a husband who was anything but considerate and thoughtful, and now may be left all alone in a way of seeming bitterness. You still have a bridegroom who still loves you, who is faithful to you, and will speak words of encouragement. Just read his words. They're addressed to you. I'm here. Lean upon me, because my burden is light. My yoke is easy. I'll give you the grace that you need day by day. That's this great bridegroom, beloved. And our calling, our calling is incline thine ear, as we read in verse 10. Forget also thine own people and thy father's house. In other words, it's more than simply a matter of words. Glory to God, glory to God, glory to God, glory to God. Everybody can give glory to God. We have a whole society going to be teaching, you know, singing, singing Christmas carols is coming up. Everybody and his brothers teaching. You can sing these things. That doesn't mean, beloved, you mean those things. It's not simply a matter of saying glory to God, glory to God, glory to God. It's a matter of living to the glory of God and showing that hearts have been transformed. And what's the proof indeed that we're interested in the glory of our Lord? We forsake thine own people. Forget also thine own people. When a young maid is married, she is to leave father's house and be to cleave to her husband. And there's a new household. One forsakes and leaves behind and is under another authority, if you will, and, and rule. So we are to follow him. Take up thy cross and follow me. Be willing to forsake all. And let me just simply say here briefly, when you get to the New Testament, there were those who were called to do exactly that as they were, con they were converted not only from heathendom, but from their Jewish extraction. We're hearing a lot about Jews these days and Jewish religion and so on. Well, the Christians, beloved, were called to leave behind themselves their Jewish families and embrace Jesus as the promised Messiah and their Families called them traitors, traitors to the Jewish religion of our fathers. How in the world can you say this Jesus is the Messiah? You claim he's the Son of God. There's no place in the scriptures that speak of this promised Messiah being the eternal Son of God. And you have the book of Hebrews written exactly to counteract that charge of those Jewish converts who had left families behind were paying the price of being disowned, saying, you have a, a Messiah that's contrary to the Old Testament prophets because you say he's the son of God. And the apostle reminds the Jew those Jewish converts, remind your critics and your families that they themselves don't know the Bible, the Old Testament. He quotes in that passage also Psalm 2. But in Hebrews chapter 1, Verses 8 and 9, he quotes the verses of this passage. Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. And then therefore God, thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness. So that God is one who anoints the one who is God. That is the Son of God, proving his full divinity. And so for this one, forsake and leave all behind. A willingness to do that, beloved if it's required of us and as it's required of us. Take up your cross and follow me. So forgetting that which is 
behind to follow him and count the cost. And then to worship him, which really means to submit and simply bow the knee. And it's as fundamental as this, to obey the word of God. This is the word of my Lord. This lays before me how I am to live, what is required of me, what I am to put aside, and how I am to love others in a proper self-denying way. And so we submit to his word, as simple and basic as that, and know the Holy Scriptures. This is his will concerning you and me. That's also proof that we love him, you see, and that's what brings glory to his grace because he has transformed us to live in that way. That magnifies the power of his grace to transform, that he can make the likes of us and obedient people who love him and even love one another in a forgiving, patient, long-suffering, forbearing way. And then one more thing, hope. The past, forgetting the past, the present, living according to his word, and a hope concerning the future. With gladness and rejoicing they shall be brought, they shall enter into the king's palace, and then speaks instead of thy father shall be thy children. Fathers going into the past, but going on with the children to be princes in all the earth. Hope. The hope that is within us. We live, beloved, with an eye to the new Jerusalem. Not with this world, not with this earth. I am a pilgrim here. I have an expectation of a glory land. And where the new Jerusalem is what I live for. And for that new Jerusalem, I am willing to count the cost. Conclude here by reading from Revelation chapter 21. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth were passed away. I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven. Now listen, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. That new Jerusalem is a double, a, a double significance represents heaven, but it also represents the church. The church as the new Jerusalem, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, when we are finally in our perfection and our fullness of glory. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. He shall dwell with them. They shall be his people. God himself shall be with them and be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. There shall be no more death, neither sorrow, nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain. Former things are passed away. He that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. The new Jerusalem, beloved. Are you looking forward to the day? Will you be there when the roll is called? Your name. How can you be sure? By faith, by faith, beloved, and who, who he is confessing him and a heart which is committed to keeping his word. Amen. Father in heaven, we thank thee for thy word. Thank thee for the revelation of thy son written on the pages of scripture, but also in history and in the Holy Spirit testifying in our hearts. May we be attracted to him, follow him, be willing to count the cost, and remember how much thou through him hast loved us. In Jesus' name, amen.